Welcome back to The Big Dig. I'm Noah Coughlin, founder and CEO of BuildUp.com. The Big Dig podcast is a collaboration between NAOP and BuildUp, highlighting exclusive insights from the top minds impacting commercial real estate development in and around Boston. On today's episode of The Big Dig, our panel discusses the evolution of retail from your old school mall to the new mixed use, innovative live work play destination. One thing is for sure, retail is not dead, but is changing rapidly. And the buzzword everyone needs to be thinking about is activation. Panelists include Emily Eisenberg, founder, Eisenberg Projects, and Corey Bilo, founder and CEO of Bilo Real Estate, and Douglas Carp, president of New England Development. Hi, everyone. It's Megan Doherty here from Build Up with another exciting episode of The Big Dig. Let's meet our panelists. Corey? Hi, I'm Corey Bilo with Bilo Real Estate. We are a national tenant rep firm representing uh, dozens of national retailers and restaurants with their expansion plans. Hi, I'm Emily Eisenberg. I'm the creative director and founder of Eisenberg Projects. Um, we are an experiential marketing agency that works predominantly with real estate developers, municipalities, and institutions on how to engage people to their places. And I'm Doug Karp, uh, president of New England Development. Uh, we're a real estate development uh, company here in the greater Boston area. So we are recording today from Cambridge side, which is a prime example of how retail space is adapting. So let's talk about the thought process behind the redevelopment here. So uh, we have been analyzing what's going on in the greater Cambridge area. Obviously, uh, when this place opened in uh, 1990, it was a huge hit and um, it was a big attraction, a place where everybody wanted to go and see. Uh, We had all the brands that you wanted that you couldn't get anywhere else. Um, and it was really a unique uh, experience. The real estate has still stayed the same, if not gotten better, um, so it's a great location, um, but we are looking at changing the uses. So not just having retail that you can find anywhere in America, um, but changing up some of the retail mix and adding some office, also looking at adding some residential, uh, potentially some lab space, really changing the way that you look at, at, a, at a mall and making it into a true mixed-use center. So let's talk about the importance of these mixed-use centers and the importance of placemaking uh, to retail and new development. Um, I think that, you know, we look at immersive experiences differently now. I think that we want to be a part of places that can offer something for um, Monday through Friday in addition to weekends. And I think that as centers are starting to structure they're bringing things restructure they're starting to bring things down to the streetscape and they're also looking at ways to get people into the core of um, their spaces to activate them and we've gone like way beyond santa claus and easter bunny i think at this point we're looking at you know it being a driving force almost similar to a neighborhood and it's it's one of those things when you think of you know why do people want to go somewhere it's convenient and it's an experience, right? So we have to be a convenient location to a population and you've got to create an experience that people want to go to. Because if it's just something that they can find digitally they may, and you don't create that experience, they're not going to drive to that location, take the transit system to that location, take their bike or in Nashville a scooter. Um, they really need to uh, have a reason to go there. Corey, I'm sure you've seen your tenants want to be in those places. Yes, absolutely. I think um, 
you know, a, a great example of, uh, I travel the whole country and see a lot of different unique projects. And I just came back from uh, uh, California, the Los Angeles market. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Americana Glendale um, Caruso, who's also built the Grove, um, you know, has been one of the innovators in terms of, you know, curating the right retail, but more importantly, creating that uh, kind of town square feel where people go, uh, not just necessarily to shop, but they go to bring their dogs and kids and walk around, you know, a lot of mommies with strollers and they'll spend the day. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more, um, uh, inviting of an environment in Los Angeles. You can't do that everywhere, but, um, it really shows to how developers are evolving and changing and, and doing whatever they can to create more traffic to their centers. I think the expectations have changed. I think just like setting something up and having it look good doesn't, doesn't count for enough anymore. I think that, you know, I grew up in Southern California and I, I got a very different mall experience. I mean, we had like a double dare and like the center plaza and there was like ice skating year round and there was like all these activities. And I think that we now realize that if we don't give something for kids or families or teenagers or dads and there isn't all of these different um, attributes to a location, then there there's a missing population that isn't going to be as uh, convincing to the rest of their family to want to spend spend time there. So I think we have just a higher expectation of what needs to be on site. So what sort of events do you kind of plan for these places? I mean, I think that a lot of it is tapping into what is local. I think that we've seen a lot of success with working with local breweries or like local nonprofits or kind of tapping into existing communities that people are already connected to. That's a great way to leverage an existing relationship into a place. Um, that's something that we see in, you know, we see that happening at all of our surrounding area malls. And I also would say that New England development, you have um, amazing um, track record of doing programming and events within in this mall and other properties tying to nonprofits, which isn't the norm. So, you know, you've been ahead of the curve in that regard for quite some time. Yeah, we, we definitely try to get in with the nonprofits um, where we are and be local. So um, we do 5K runs out of Cambridge side. We've done all sorts of special nights where there's tickets that are sold and different events both here and other places. Um, in our project in Chestnut Hill, we do um, an art installation uh, with some local artists, which drive people to go see it. They're Instagrammable moments, which are great. Um, so they hashtag, et cetera, and put it on, um, on their social media, which is great publicity for us, but also great for the artist. Um, and so we're constantly looking for things. I mean, I, I think Emily mentioned um, breweries. We've um, matched up with some breweries at some of our outlet centers. We've done food truck festivals at some of our centers and parking lots on off days. And so trying to find different ways to get people to a center um, or a project is, is, is important and you experiment, right? Not everything's gonna work perfectly, um, but you have to try a bunch of different things and start to see what works well and, and what doesn't you might alter and, and change. And we do a lot of trend forecasting in this space, too, because, you know, similar to what we were talking about on the panel today, assuming that what's cool today is going to be cool tomorrow is, is not reasonable. We have to kind of always be a few steps ahead, because if there's 700 beer gardens in the city, then what's going to make ours at this particular space interesting? Um, you know, the beer is good, but is it exceptionally better? That's a good question. Well, and I think if you did it every day... A beer garden is not going to necessarily work that well at a, at a shopping center, right? It's it's kind of you make it a big event or something, um, and and you market it both um, traditionally and online, and, and people show up. So, 
Right, and I think what's also um, important are the you know the good landlords now are doing a great job of you know curating their centers and finding uh, that merchandising the center is a lot more important than necessarily getting the highest rent or the best credit tenant. You know, in the past you'd see these really traditional strip centers with uh, CVS or a Walgreens and. Um, you know, a bunch of banks and not not exactly the most exciting tenant mix. Um, you know, uh, Doug brought up Chestnut Hill. Uh, I live in the area there. It's um, a great example of um, how they've really done a great job of complementing one tenant with another. Um, they, they're in touch with what the customer needed there. There was a need for a high-end fitness facility when the one across the street had closed. Um, so people go to Equinox. You see the women going to SoulCycle. Then they go to Sweetgreen to get their lunch. Then they may go and do their urgent care visit on the way out and then go to Wegmans. But, uh, but anyway, I think, you know, m- merchandising uh, the, the center has become, you know, paramount to keeping a, center, a, a center successful. So that brings up the point of anchor tenants. And as you were talking about in this Chestnut Hill location, Doug, you, you said um, having these core anchor tenants like the grocery store um, and the, the healthcare facility has allowed you kind of maybe some flexibility with the other tenants. Yes. Um, so, I mean, we've attracted a, a good variety, a curated variety of tenancy. Um, but it all revolved around getting a Wegmans grocery store, an Equinox Health Club, and an anchor medical office tenant. Um, so uh, having those three tenancies allow us to kind of curate a mix around that. Um, we've, we, all, we always say we try to go with a health and wellness theme, so we're trying to do that. But it's also about convenience. So, um, you know, there's a Starbucks and there's a bank, um, but there's a sweet green and a soul cycle. There's an anthropology. I mean, we've got a little bit of everything for everybody um, and tried to make it a real community local center. So I think we also want to touch on this other trend we've seen now of the re- reverse migration of e-commerce back into brick and mortar stores um, in why they're finding the need to actually have a physical presence in, in a shopping center. So I might touch this and then hand it to you like a baton because I'm usually the entry po- entry point for a lot of small, um, like when the, with e-commerce starts, we do a lot of pop-ups. So we've done a lot of projects with like Lunia or like MM LaFleur, like some of these brands that are just testing out the market before they actually get ready to go. So they can start to anticipate what kind of sales, what kind of brand awareness, what kind of traffic they're going to get. Um, and I think that one thing I've learned that's been super interesting in the pop-up realm and in the short-term realm is that show showroom models where people can actually go and look and touch and feel is, is very, it's too similar to shopping online because you don't actually get to experience bringing that, get that satisfaction, that immediate satisfaction that we're seeing that a lot of brands are are even when they pop up or doing more traditional retail concepts, even if it's just for a very short term and then starting to like figure out what their their blueprint or their footprint's gonna be like before Reformation pops into six or seven long-term leases. And by long-term, I mean three to five years. Yeah, I, I think what's, um, what's happening, you, you see the trend among a lot of digitally native brands is that they realize that um, retail is not, again, just about making the uh, sale at, at that moment within the store. Um, they're opening a physical store is a brand building opportunity for them, and it's a customer acquisition opportunity for them. Uh, with with a lot of the brands that uh, that I've seen online, uh, they're they're finding out that um, 
most of their customers are the younger of the younger generation, the millennials, because that's who's used to shopping online. What, um, and it somewhat becomes self-fulfilling. A lot of them tell me, oh, my customer is you know, 28 because that's really who they're marketing to because these companies don't have the uh, advertising and media dollars to do any massive uh, ad campaigns and marketing, so they're doing social media marketing. So if you're over 50 uh, or over 60, you're probably not familiar with 90% of the cool digitally native brands because you're not on Instagram every day seeing what's new. Um, so I think by a lot of a lot of the brands that I've talked to, um, Wayfair would be a great example. You know, Wayfair, uh, yes, they do spend a lot of money on advertising and marketing, but you see them now opening uh, a physical store. After uh, they did a pop-up, though. Exactly. Yes, they tested it, and um, and they they found that wow, this is you know a great ability to connect with the customer as well. You know, th- there is something to be said for, you know, when I first saw Amazon opening stores, I kind of questioned it, um, especially being that it was basically just a bookstore. It wasn't overly exciting. And um, and I, I realized it's n- not necessarily about selling books or selling their new gadgets. It's about giving the customer uh, an ability to connect with that brand, have a positive experience. They know at the end of the day, if they buy something online at Amazon and it's you know, terribly wrong, they actually have a person or store they could go to and talk to. Um, you know, people are somewhat hesitant. And I've seen, you know, in talking with people at Best Buy, part of the reason they've stayed relevant is when you're buying a $2,000 television or washer and dryer, you're a little hesitant to buy it from an online store that you don't know where they are, you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't really have a person you could speak to if there's a problem. So I, I think physical retail is still about good old-fashioned customer service. I also think that, you know, going to Instagram, you've got these brands that basically are just clickbait Instagram brands that are selling garbage to people for $30, $40. And I think that what's, and I've, I've been susceptible to a few of these and I've bought <laughs> a few things and they basically disintegrated into fruit flies as they arrive in my house. Um, <laughs> and I think that what the antithesis of that is that a lot of brands are realizing that if they want their customer to touch and feel and understand the quality of their product, they can't assume that they're going to trust how beautiful it looks online because of the, you know, the other equation that we're seeing in contrast. So we think that, um, you know, we're going to be seeing more of that because if we're looking at long-term brand loyalty, that usually starts when a shopper is, you know, kind of in their early 20s, especially men. I think men, they, they um, commit to brands within, you know, a five to eight year time period, and then they continually buy those brands over and over. So if you want to get in touch with them and sort of have them adopt you as their brand, aka Indochino, what have you, that's, I think, how that has to, they need to sort of have that tactile experience. So you're saying we're a little lazy, right, guys? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, if we're going to go with stereotypes. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I understand what you're saying that, um, and and I think it's something that we all have to, to think about is, even though we won't use stereotypes, but um, there are some generalities yeah. that are that are important to to realize and understand. Um, but but we are seeing a little bit of a change in brands. So it used to be that you were a specific brand person. You may be head to toe in it. Now you're finding people might have 
you know, the, the pants or jeans from one place, they've got a shirt from another place. They've, if they wear a jacket, they've got a jacket from another place. Their shoes are sneakers from M. Jemmy or something like that. Um, so they're, they're actually kind of changing um, and have multiple brand affiliations as opposed to it used to be, you know, you'd go into the Gap and you maybe head to toe Gap. So it's interesting to watch that that change now. So during the panel, you guys touched on um, how WeWork is changing um, the office market. Do you see changes to the retail market in terms of what people are looking for in lease terms and flexibility? Doug? So uh, the short answer is yes, right? So um, I think that we work and companies like that have changed the office market pretty dramatically on term length of, of leases um, and and cost um, for for the end user. So a lot of people are looking for flexible space. Uh, they're not sure if they want to grow or shrink. Uh, they don't want to put out the capital dollars. They're much more willing to do it monthly. That works for them. I think you're starting to see you know some of that come into the retail world when uh, we talk about pop-ups and stuff like that that is essentially a little bit of what we work is doing um, the issue being the retailers historically have wanted to build their brand and it, the store looks a certain way and it uses these type of finishes etc so it's a little different than the we work model which is everything looks like we work right you go into we work space it's we work i think the i think that that us developers um, and landlords that, that do retail are going to have to start to figure out how to use some of that um, that cues that we're learning from WeWork on how to create spaces that can be flexible, use differently, expand, contract. Uh, historically, it's not something that we've all done. Um, it's also meaning that, that we have to be very active. We were often very passive. We had great security in a mall. We had a, you know, an, a help desk, but that was about it. Um, now, I think we do it better than most, but that, that's kind of what you did. We have to be really active. We have to engage with the consumer. We have to think about that, that we're not just um, kind of a warehouse holding these, these brands. We're actually part of it. We're a hospitality. And so I think that's kind of the WeWork part. Um, and, and the digital brands that we've kind of been talking about, they're used to being able to move fast and quickly and change and adapt they're only going to be able to do that if they can do that in the physical world too. So I believe that the landlords are having to become better at adapting to term and understanding um, capital expenses, things like that. So that's stuff that we're all kind of working with now. Yeah, and I think you're seeing it in terms of different new retail concepts that have kind of taken that WeWork approach. A good example would be Beta, where um, in a sense they're a uh, – a, a showroom for other people's products and they're in a sense acting like a, a landlord um, you know people everyone loves to talk about we work as being you know this enormous success story um, I'm uh, you know one of the few people that think it's really not uh, as successful as people think it's not in my opinion it's not a sustainable model and um, you I mean, know, aren't they not cash positive? Oh, they continue to lose a fortune of money, and and I think it's the reason they've been so successful is because we've had one of the biggest up markets the last you know ten years that uh, we've ever seen on the office side. So uh, the yeah. the one oh, thing that I will say sure. about that, right, is there are a lot of these big companies, growing companies that are not cash positive. So we we look at it as the way that we look at a traditional company, and we say, well, they're not cash positive. Well, yeah, because they're they're spending to acquire more. 
Um, that's one thing. The other thing that I'd say is they're flipping their model a little bit. So there's a lot of this, um, they're going after a kind of enterprise business. So if they can actually, which they're doing, but, and they're, they want to make it a lot of their spaces, at least 50, 50% or, or not, or more, um, getting enterprise leases. So they, they sign up IBM, they sign up the Googles of the world, they sign up, a, you name it, Accenture, um, different companies, uh, that will actually lease space with real credit. So I agree with you. You know, the old WeWork where it was just a bunch of desks and people just rented and, you know, when the economy's good, great, and when it's bad, they go back to their house. They're actually saying, wait, we, we have to think about this now. We got to get enterprise business into our space. And the enterprises are looking at it going, great, no capital outlay. I can do it short-term, long-term. I have flexible space. Oh, and by the way, now I can have an office in Boston, even though my main office is in New York, et cetera. So there is, there's definitely a change in the WeWork model, but you're right. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no, that's great if they could do that, because that's always been the, the knock on WeWork that, um, you know, you're, you're signing up with a bunch of people that have no credit, nothing to go after. And, you know, in, in this economy, people haven't been defaulting at a, at a great rate. But as soon as we have a downturn in the market, which is inevitable, um, you know, we'll see how they how they last. We actually had them on our first podcast um, and we talked to them a lot about the enterprise model, which is, is very interesting. And like you said, allows them to go into several different markets and, and have different offices. And they also have another uh, arm that's co-living space as well. So they have a couple different irons in the fire, I guess you would say. <laughs> yeah. Now we're, we're in a unique yeah. world right now where um, there's a lot of companies that are, you know, considered leaders in their sector, you know, Amazon being the best example that you know, I like to say is basically a non-for-profit company, um, at least on the retail side. <laughs> you know, I know they make their money elsewhere, um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it's um, eventually the money will stop flowing, and some of these concepts will have to adjust and figure out how to, you know, turn a profit. So let's bring it back to retail, um, and just if if all of you kind of wanted to touch on what you think the future of retail looks like. Sure. I think, um, you know, being that I do work all over the country, um, there's a vast difference in what's going on on both coasts compared to the rest of the country. You know, if you look at the marketplace from D.C. up to Boston and probably from San Diego up to San Jose, San Francisco, um, it's a different world. You know, there are little pockets in South Florida and Chicago and Dallas that, you know, are also seeing uh, tremendous growth. Um, and, and strengthen the retail side. But for most of the country that's built around um, commuter cities that don't have people necessarily living like we do here in Boston, living, working, shopping, um, all in the city, um, they're suburban-driven retail markets with the old traditional malls, you know, anchored by a Sears or a Penny's. Um, and uh, and those are the, those are the malls that um, when people talk about the retail apocalypse, that's really what they're referring to. Um, you know, there was clearly that coupled with the, um, the enormous amount of power centers that are fueled by these category killers that are, you know, slowly one by one falling by the wayside. Um, and it's becoming, you know, more obvious that uh, you don't need to be 40,000, 50,000 square feet um, to have every single type of screwdriver, every, every type of uh, baseball glove in your store, um, people are finding that, you know, you, we could be effective operating out of 10,000 feet, have our core assortment, and be able to ship everything else online. 
and that's going to dramatically change the landscape. Um, I would I I would believe that there's probably 20% of the shopping centers, whether it's malls, lifestyle centers, or um, power centers, that are going to go away. Um, you know, those I that are good. Generous. Yeah, those <laughs> those that are good real estate, um, such as Cambridgeside Galleria, where you could reinvent yourself and 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 add um, effective uh, mixed-use elements, uh, office, uh, condos, you know, different uh, restaurants, entertainment concepts. Those malls, we're seeing it. You're seeing it everywhere where um, the, I'd say the top 50 malls, you know, it's, it's ironic because the top 50 malls are probably as uh, successful as they've ever been. Um, you know, you look here in Boston, uh, the Prudential Center. I've got half a dozen clients that want to be in the Prudential Center and can't get space. So that gives you an example of, you know, the strength of a good project. Um, but again, that's, that's unique to these, you know, wonderful cities like Boston. Um, but for the rest of the country, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I mean, I think the coasts are going to be in a different position um, than some of the, the middle kind of suburban box stores, as we all love to talk about. Um, I've done a lot of work with Westfield and Mesa Rich and seen how they've on a, you know, they've also tapped into highly localized strategic um planning in the sense that they bring in um, kind of like hometown hero retailers alongside these really important nationals. And I think that that's something I'm, we're just starting to see here in Boston and in other urban centers that I feel like is kind of trickling over from the West Coast. And I think part of that is creating something that feels more unique and um, it gives you a reason. You can differentiate each location from each other, seeing that there's a potentially something new or something cool. Um, but I do think, and granted, I know that the main focus we're talking about um, being here with you, Doug, is malls. But I think that, you know, the retail in general, we have a lot of other things that we sort of need to scratch our head on. I mean, I do a lot of work on Newbury Street right now. And, you know, we've been working on Newbury Street for five years. I have 46 ground floor retail spaces that are open, totally empty. Now, I know that, that there's a litany of reasons why that is the case, um, but it, you know, obviously we don't have one owner. We do have a couple large players in the game. Um, but I do think that when you think about the, the irony is when the rest of the country thinks about the shopping experience of New England or thinks about the East Coast, they picture the Soho's or the Newberry Streets as these really lovely kind of um, spirited places to go. And, and as with that many vacancies, you know, I, I don't we don't know what that future is going to look like. And in a lot of ways. The irony is that the malls have a bigger advantage because they can kind of control the narrative and they have the curatorial ability to create something that is highly specific and special for that place where a lot of these downtown mean streets and these kind of more infamous, like charming retail districts don't have that luxury. And the curi I'm curious to know what's going to happen to those 1,200, 1,500 square foot spaces. Well, and I think something that, that you both have hit on is is curated local is going to be important and it is important right and so even the national brands right they need to think locally more you know when you look at what the 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 legacy brands always did is someone in an office in new york was making all the decisions going forward and what the what was being sold in the store the manager had like very little input on it both marketing-wise and for merchandise. That's got to change. It's starting to, but it's still not really there yet. And I think that will that will be a big change in, in retail, not just local tenants that are, you know, local guys, 
but the the national brands if they're going to actually exist they've got to understand each market because you know as i think um uh, both uh, of emily and Corey were saying was that it's it's different everywhere you go right so i was in nashville for a conference recently and that's different than boston which is different than florida which is california midwest etc i mean we've got places all around the consumer is totally different, and they're looking for something different. So I think that that's going to be the future of retail. The other thing that uh, I was just at a conference in Nashville, and the big discussion um, that opened the conference was about um, AR um, and um, artificial uh, reality. And so uh, where where is that going, or augmented reality? Where is that going? And and they were just showing different examples of how that's going to be used in malls, downtowns, municipalities, et cetera. I mean, there's just going to be ways to use these pop-ups um, that'll be virtual too in your centers that you'll only be able to see using your phone or glasses at some point. And we all think, oh, that's that'll happen, you know, 20 years from now. It's happening now. So um, the reality is like Burger King did a thing with their app where if you actually take their app and you show, if you put it over an ad from any of their competitors, it goes on fire, and then you get a free Whopper, okay? <laughs> Game of Thrones just did something where if you use, I think it was Snapchat, if you use their Snapchat thing, on the Flatiron building, the big dragon comes down and starts snowing, and it says Game of Thrones. They got paid, I think, a million dollars for that, Snapchat did. Did Flatiron building get money from it? So there's going to be this whole new kind of air rights thing that's going to be going on, which is going to be tied into retail and and just development in general that we're all going to have to watch and understand. Because if you read anything from Apple or Google or Amazon or any of them, they're all talking about it, that this is really the future. And it's going to be the using the physical and the digital, and that's going to really be the combination. So I think retail is going to be have, have to go that way. Um, and it, it's already happening now. All right. Thank you guys all so much for joining us here on The Big Dig. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed The Big Dig, please subscribe at the iTunes Music Store, Spotify, or SoundCloud. The Big Dig is a collaboration between BuildUp.com and Naop, Massachusetts. To learn more about joining Massachusetts' leading commercial real estate development association, go to naiopma.org. For more information about joining the show, you can email us. Any inquiries, thoughts, or feedback for new suggestions, we welcome all input. Info, I-N-F-O, at buildup.com. That's I-N-F-O at B-L-D-U-P dot com. And to stay on top of all market news, information, and real-time happenings with new construction and real estate development, go to buildup.com. That's B-L-D-U-P dot com. I'm Noah Coughlin. Thank you for listening.